starting in verse 21, reading 21 through 23. This is God's word. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Would you uh, join with me and ask, as we ask God to bless his word preached, let's pray. Father, we need your work. We need your Holy Spirit. And so it is our prayer that he might take the words that he penned so long ago through Matthew and make them come alive to our hearts. May we see the truth of Jesus Christ in his word. Illumine it, bring light to it, Holy Spirit, so that we might experience the power of the resurrection here in our midst this morning. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us today, we're kind of nearing the end of a series on Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that we've seen over and over again, really throughout the Bible, but particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus just isn't a very safe person. He isn't interested in people just casually following him because knowing Jesus changes everything. And he's always forcing issues. Um, one, one pastor said that Jesus was perhaps the most disruptive person in human history. He never entered a crowd without dividing it. Right? He's just not safe. In every conversation that he has, and even every miracle that he performs, when he raises the dead, he's confrontational. He's forcing people to take sides. He's forcing an allegiance. And one of the things that we often say is that the Christian life really is, if you're walking with Jesus, is a constant test of allegiances. He's kind of always putting us in situations to make us choose sin or him, the love of man or the love of Jesus. And because he loves his people, he's forcing these issues constantly. He enters into not just crowds and disrupts, he enters into lives and disrupts. And one of the things that we looked at last week um, in, in this section of Jesus' closing comments on the Sermon on the Mount is the marks of the false prophets. And Jesus says they're ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. They're, they're looking to make their mark on the world at the expense of Jesus' own people. At the expense of Jesus' people, they pad their wallets and their egos. False teachers want numbers. They want a larger ministry that grows and grows their influence and their wallet in the world. And here's Jesus in this passage. He's clearly the reverse. He cares about what one's life looks like in allegiance to him. And if that means cutting down the numbers to expose the heart, he'll do so. He challenges us. He challenges us to look, not only look at the outside to see what road we're on, the first warning, or to see what guides we're taking on the journey, the second warning. Now he's, he's forcing us to look inside. Who are you? 
Jesus, in a sense, turning people away in this passage, isn't he? He's turning people away who would not truly follow him because he is concerned about what's going on in your heart. Jesus is God in the flesh, right? It's not just this important doctrine that we want to confess and admit to. Um, It is a a statement about his identity that really carries a sense of his mission. He's God in the flesh. It's good news, right? God has come, and he's come into this world, not just just to perform miracles and, and raise the dead, He's come into this world. God has come into the world to fix what man is broken by sin. That's good news. God has come to put everything back together. What man broke with sin, God has entered in to redeem. But, and this is a big deal, but if that's true, to truly know Jesus changes everything. Because he's truly God. And because he's truly God, he's just not safe. When he comes into your life, you should expect everything to change. He's going to change your sexuality. But he's also going to change how you use your money. He's going to change how you use your body and how you use your affections. The things that you care about, all things that you are, are now on the table if you give yourself to Jesus. He changes everything. But to enjoy the blessings of being known by Jesus, you have to be known by Him. And that can be a little scary because when He knows you, He enters into your life and the baseline movement begins to be away from pride and self-dependence and putting more of who you are and what you trust in into the hands of Jesus. This is why he's always forcing the allegiance question. He's driving us out of ourselves. Left to yourself, you'll ruin your life. And so I want to force you to choose between me and you. You'll choose you unless I leave you to yourself, if I leave you to yourself. And so the first danger that he warns us of is the danger of going the wrong way, taking the wrong journey. The second danger in these closing comments that he warns us of is having the wrong guides, the false teachers. But in this section, he's paring it down. And he's warning us of the danger of false disciples. It's a pretty stark warning, isn't it? I mean, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you walk around and consider yourself a follower of Jesus, he says, not everyone who says that, who uses the right lingo, will make it in. It's the third time in this section that he's warned us about the danger of the coming judgment at the end of time. He's warned us, if you choose the wrong road, you'll enter through, many will enter through the wide gate and take the easy road. It will end in destruction. If you follow false teachers... And bear no fruit in your life, you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. And here he's saying, as the end of time comes, when I sit on my throne of judgment, there'll be many who claim to be followers of mine, and I'll cast them from my presence. It's a difficult thing to hear. I mean, Jesus, he doesn't mince words, does he? I mean, there's this bold love to him. 
being God in the flesh. He's free to speak the truth. He doesn't just want people to experience the judgment. This is a warning. I don't want this from you, so examine yourselves. It's worth listening to him on this, to test yourself, right? There's this litmus test that he gives us for whether you are an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. See, not so much that you know Jesus, but did you hear what he says? It's not so much that you know him that's important, but that he knows you. You don't want to run the danger of facing the day of judgment that's coming and have him say, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. And you see the distinguishing mark of one who's known by Jesus. He gives it here in two different ways. At the beginning, at the end, he brackets this section. Here's the distinguishing mark of the one who's known by me. He does the will of my Father in heaven. And again, in the last paragraph, in verse 23, um, he warns us again that the ones who will be cast out are the workers of lawlessness. And so Jesus is forcing the question, do you truly know Jesus, because to be known by him is to know him, and to know him is to produce fruit of a love for God's law, obedience in the life. And you see what he's doing. I mean, I think he's, what he's doing is he's confronting the religion of the South, right? Nominal Christianity. It's the, it's the religion of our culture. Some might refer to it as cultural Christianity. Isn't that what's, what's sort of common here? It's interesting that Jesus just doesn't accept what some have called easy believism. You might have walked an aisle, um, or maybe you were baptized, or prayed the sinner's prayer, or you, you grew up in a Christian home, or you go to a Christian school, and your confidence is in those things. And Jesus says, there will be some who can say, all of those things. And I don't know them. It's a warning. It's a litmus test of where we are spiritually. He's forcing us to look with a more careful eye at where we are and who we are. He doesn't want to pad his numbers. He's not looking to send the mission agency a report of how many converts he has um, as a result of his ministry. There's too much at stake here for to him to accept just a spurious conversion. In fact, Jesus spends a great deal of time causing us, calling us to examine the authenticity of his faith because Jesus regularly had people leave him, followers leave him. In John chapter 2, John makes this amazing statement where Jesus, people were giving themselves to Jesus, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to him because he knew man's heart. And in John chapter 6, Jesus goes through a long series of very difficult sayings. And you know what happens? His followers leave him. And after this, he turns to his 12 disciples and he says, What about you? Don't you want to go too? And I love what they say. He's testing their faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's this despairing. We, we, we don't know what other God can help us. You've said some pretty crazy things, and you've said some really hard things, and you've just divided us all. We don't know where else to go. We've despaired of ourselves, and you are the only one who can help us. You alone have the words of eternal life. 
you say hard things, but I'm on board. I don't know what else to do. And Jesus is saying, look, to nominal Christianity, to cultural Christianity, to the ways of our culture, he says, look, there are two ways to avoid me, and they're both religious ways. First, there are those who say, Lord, Lord. And you see what he's doing? He's saying, look, I'm... To the group on the right, you, you recognize your theology, your confession, the words that you use are on board. Lord, Lord. They recognize him as Messiah. They recognize him as one who should be respected. He's a good teacher. It stays in their mind. It doesn't go into their hearts. It doesn't sink. Their profession was just simply that on their lips. They never gave themselves to Jesus. But on the other hand... Some will say, look, look, look what we've done for you. We performed signs and wonders in your name. We healed in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Look at all the great ministry we've done for you. And certainly Jesus in the back of his mind has gotten viewed Judas, who was mummered amongst the twelve, was sent out by Jesus, performed great signs in his name, abandoned Jesus, and is being consumed today in the fires of hell. They say, Lord, look at all the things we did. And Jesus says, look, there are things you know, there's things you've done, but the evidence is that those two things are more important than me. You valued your theology and you valued your ministry more than you valued me. Confidence in your theology, confidence in your works is still confidence in yourself. You've got to despair. We have to despair of ourselves before we can come to Jesus. So knowing Jesus changes everything. Do you know him? Because that's the issue that he's pressing at the end of days when the day of judgment comes neither good theology about jesus or good works for jesus will have any value no one enters the kingdom of god by their good beliefs and no one enters the kingdom of god by their good ministry the only ones who enter are are entering by the good works of jesus christ alone you can only enter the kingdom of god by knowing jesus or as i said rather and this is important being known by Jesus. And that can get a little, so at this point, it could get a little overwhelming, right? I mean, these are hard things that he's saying. So let's pull back from a second and get some perspective, right? Don't ever just read a portion of your Bible out of context. It's dangerous when you do that. Pull back. When it gets confusing and overwhelming, pull back. What else has Jesus said? Who is he? What are the promises that he's made to me? Here's what Here's the broader context, especially of Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel to a degree. To be known by Jesus changes everything. Who does he know? Who does he notice? He notices frequently the weak and the frail, the outcast and the broken, the helpless and the humble. What does it mean to be known by Jesus? It means that I, I, I've, I need to be in the position where I say, I, there's just nothing good in me. Uh, I cannot, on my own strength, do anything that is any good. I've despaired of myself. And Jesus is like, 
as I've said before, it's like a four-year-old running to get ice cream. He can't, he's going to put everything down and run. That's who he notices. That's who he knows. The weak, the frail. This is God in the flesh. The one God who says in the prophets, this is the one on whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. So to be known, look, that's a loaded term in the Bible. It's often used as a euphemism for the marriage bed where there's nothing to hide and you are fully embraced. To be known by Jesus is to be exposed at your worst, but to be embraced by his best love. He sees the worst in us. This is what the gospel says. He sees the worst in us and then in his, in his knowing covers our nakedness and shame with his blood and righteousness so that by his blood our guilt is removed and by his righteousness we are presented to the Father. This is the language of the Bible. Perfect, without blemish, blameless before God, holy in his sight because he knows us at our worst, covers us, embraces us with his love. He's opened his kingdom to anyone You see what he's doing by cutting both ways? It's not your good theology or your good ministry that gets you in. He's leveled the playing field. You don't have to be an intellectual elite to know the secret knowledge of God to gain the life of Jesus Christ, nor do you have to go out and do amazing works of ministry to know the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It only comes to the worst, to the most helpless, to those who've despaired of themselves. See, it's not that you know Jesus, but that he knows you. And he knows me with all my junk. And he loves me. He knows me and embraces me. But if he knows you, if he really knows you, he will not just embrace you. He will change you. So that you can't live for yourself any longer. The general principle of the gospel is this. What Jesus commands, he also provides. He provides his righteousness and he commands righteousness and by his power he produces it. He says that those who truly believe in me, who know me, will produce good works. Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. These are the ones that I know, those who do the will of my Father. And here's the promise of the gospel. What you cannot do, Jesus will do. Did you hear our our stanzas we sang the last Thine is the battle from our last hymn. Thine is the battle. Thine shall be your praise. To belong to Jesus means that his power is at work in your life. He knows who you are and he knows what you cannot do. And so he comes into your life to make you do what you cannot do on your own strength. Those who belong to Jesus do great things. They do great things. But you notice what he condemns. Great acts of power, signs, wonders, prophecy. These things may be great acts of power, but they're not the great acts that Jesus wants to see his power produce. He calls the rejected ones, you workers of lawlessness. It's an interesting choice of words. It's a compound word in the Greek, without law. Those who do what they want to do and do not submit themselves to Jesus' word. He knows them too and he rejects them because when Jesus knows you, he changes you. And knowing Jesus 
leads to a life that is changed in the most extraordinary ways so that life is lived in the most ordinary circumstances. He promised the apostles, look, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this just says, you're going to do greater works than me. Right? They raised the dead. They cast out demons. And he's like, hey, guess what? You're going to do greater works than me. What are the greater works? The greatest of these is love. Who cares if you can prophesy and have the tongues of angels? You're just making needless noise if you have not love. Pursue the greatest gift. That's where the power of Jesus is most on display. Satan can do signs and wonders. False prophets can do signs and wonders. But only Jesus can make someone humble. To know Jesus is to know his power so remarkable that his extraordinary power is displayed so that we can live life in the most ordinary circumstances. This world doesn't need signs and wonders. It needs men who are willing to lay down their lives for their families only by Jesus' power. This world doesn't need more prophecy. We have God's word. It's enough. What we need, what this world needs, is people who have been forgiven and are willing to forgive others as a result, to have the life of Jesus pulsating through our souls so that he who looked on the ones murdering him and said, Father, forgive him, then makes us be able to go, I'll forgive because you've forgiven me of much. Only one, it's the only power of Jesus that can, can take an anxious soul and enable it to rest in the Father's provision, whether it is in plenty or in times of trial, can produce contentment, the opposite of anxiety. If Jesus knows you, he knows you at your worst. And this is what he's going to do. He's going to bring the power of the resurrection to the worst part of your life. So that where you struggle the most, he is going to change you. And the end result, you do the will of the Father in heaven. Thine is the battle, thine shall be the praise. So this is the table of Jesus Christ. Let me close with this. This is the table of Jesus Christ, right? This is a sign to you of what he does for those he loves. You see, in the ancient Near East... The table was a very significant thing. Today, it's still this. It's a place of rest and provision. But in the ancient Near East, in Jesus' time, the table was a place where you were fully embraced. That's what it meant to eat with someone in Jesus' day. And you remember who he ate with. It was the most hopeless, destitute. The tax collectors... The prostitutes, they were glad to be there because it meant that Jesus embraced them and gave them rest. Jesus was accused by the culturally religious of not being from God because he ate with those people. But do you see what he's saying? This proves I'm from God because I've come to the lowly and I know them. And I love them. 
and I embrace them. So, this is also a table, though, of nourishing power. If you've despaired of yourself this morning, good. Come to this table. Because this table is for those who have despaired of themselves and entrusted everything to Jesus. He is my only hope. I know that he knows me. I know that he knows me because he's proven his love for me in this. While I was yet a sinner, he died for me. This is the table where helpless souls find extraordinary power to live life in obedience to God in the most ordinary ways. Let's pray.